Well, good morning, everyone. I'll be presenting my paper on Athanasius. This is from my church history class from last year, and this is sort of a, a brief overview of his life and his contribution to the church. So Athanasius was a Christian. He's a theologian and even a bishop of Alexandria. He made very pivotal contributions to the formal orthodoxy and the life of the church through his life, his writings, and his correspondence. He was not a, a power-hungry, self-motivated leader who sought to achieve applause for himself. Rather, as Archibald Robertson wrote, the glory of God and the welfare of the church absorbed him fully at all times. So Athanasius comprehended, taught, and defended important doctrines of the Christian faith so that the truth of the triune God and his salvation would be preserved by the church vowed through the ages. So the first section of this class, or of this Sunday school class, will be a profile on Athanasius, followed by his contributions to the church, namely three things. First, his contribution in upholding and clarifying the identity of Jesus Christ. Second, his contribution in defending the Christian faith, specifically his apologetic methodology, and even his defense of the homoousion in the Nicene Creed. Homoousion is the Greek word meaning of the same essence. And last, a brief review of his character, his witness, and how that contributed to the church. So his profile, mostly I've got this from Michael Reeves' book, Theolo Theologians You Should Know, and has a chapter on Athanasius. Athanasius was born around 295 to 299 AD in Alexandria, Egypt. He was described as being small in stature, and even his enemies called him a black dwarf because he was really small and had that dark complexion. So early in his years, his, the context of his early years is around intense Christian persecution under the emperor Diocletian, which was then followed by the reign of Constantine. He was brought under the tutelage of Alexander, who was the bishop of Alexandria, and later, Athanasius became his secretary. So during this time, during Athanasius' time as secretary uh, of Alexander, a theological controversy arose regarding Christ's deity and his relation to the Father. So sometime in 318 AD, a presbyter in Alexandria named Arius taught that the Son was created by the Father. So the Son actually had a beginning. There was a start, and thus the Son is not co-eternal with the Father. But more will be explored regarding Arianism in the later Sunday school classes. So fast forward to 325 AD when Emperor Constantine called a general council of the church uh, of bishops in Nicaea near modern Istanbul to settle the issue of Arius' teaching because it was really causing division and Constantine has its reasons for calling this council. So over 300 bishops gathered to discuss the matter which inevitably led to condemning Arius' teaching as heretical and formulating one of the foundational creeds of the Christian faith, and that is the Nicene Creed, which was later revised in 381 AD. At the time of the council, Athanasius was still a deacon, a secretary, so his involvement in the council was likely minimal. But afterwards, in 328 AD, three years later after the council at Nicaea, Athanasius was appointed as Bishop of Alexandria after Alexander died, succeeding him. 
That was when Athanasius' contribution to the church began. If you really want to know more about Athanasius, if you have time, some, again, introductory resources on his life. Michael Reeves, theologians you should know. He has a chapter in Athanasius. Or you can listen to John Piper's um, conference talk, Contending for Our All, The Life and Ministry of Athanasius. It is also in a book form that you could read. Or really, if you're pressed for time and you don't want to bother with church history at all, as I was trying to um, uh, set up this church history uh, lesson for today, Michael Haken has a really short article in Crossway called 10 Things You Should Know About Athanasius. Really, just 10 things listing out brief, staccato-like fashion of who Athanasius is and what involved in his life. So the following will be an overview of Athanasius' contribution. Again, his Christology, very, very important for the life of the Christian his apologetics, and last, his testimony as a Christian believer. So two of Athanasius' body of work you may have heard, against the heathen and on the incarnation of the word, will be the basis for this section. Athanasius believed that the person of Jesus Christ must be viewed and understood, as Peter Barnes noted, in the context of redemption. Jane D. Kelly, in his book called Early Christian Doctrines, quote, in Athanasius' approach, philosophical and cosmological considerations played a very minor part, and his guiding thought was the conviction of redemption. So for Athanasius, redemption and creation are intimately related. Those are intimately related because the only proper and sufficient redeemer of creation is the one who created it. Athanasius argued that the renewal of creation was the work of the self-same word, logos, that made it at the beginning. So speaking of Christ, Athanasius asserted that the reason of his bodily appearing, that the word became flesh, is because it was in the power of none other to turn corruptible to incorruption, except the Savior himself that had at the beginning also made all things out of naught. So Athanasius also affirmed that God made through his own word, our Savior Jesus Christ, the human race after his own image. Athanasius stressed that the word through whom God created the world is the same word, the same logos, who appeared in the flesh as the Savior of creation. He stressed that Jesus, the Father's word, again, the Father's logos, is God by virtue of his involvement with creation and redemption. So those two, um, th those two key um, ideas and even thought is very important for Athanasius Christology. A man named Khaled Anatolios, who wrote a synthesis of Athanasius' thought, noted that Athanasius' recurring rationale for the deity of the Son is this. If the Son is creator, he cannot be created. Anatolius further adds that being created and being creator are mutually exclusive categories. So what we have here is the creator-creature distinction. Therefore, the force of Athanasius' argument denies the creatureliness of the word. The word cannot be created. And also, that the wor and also it affirms the divinity of the word. So even when the word became incarnate, Athanasius upheld that the word was no less God, really affirming the divinity of the Logos. This means that Jesus Christ retained his full, divinity, full divine nature 
while becoming man. Athanasius was also careful in his arguments. While maintaining that there is only one true God who is the Lord of creation and maker of all existence, he made explicitly clear that the word is God. He argued that the word is not created nor an inanimate object, but the living and powerful word of the good God, the God of the universe, the very word which is God. Athanasius also made clear that while the word is the unchanging image of his son, of, sorry, excuse me, Athanasius also made clear while the word is the unchanging image of his own father, the word is truly distinct from the father for the word has true existence and is not composite. But there were some challenges that were raised against Athanasius' Christology. Some of these scholars know, like J.N.D. Kelly saying, the central problem of his Christology, namely, whether he envisaged Christ's humanity as including a human rational soul or regarded the logos as taking place of one. Essentially, what, what, what Kelly's trying to say is whether the logos assumed a full human nature, and a full human nature both includes body and soul, or if the logos only assumed a human body apart from a human soul, just the flesh, just the material component. Peter Lightheart noted that Athanasius' lack of emphasis on the lack of emphasis on the soul of the humanity of Christ have led some to conclude that Athanasius' Christology was Apollinarian. So Apollinarianism is another heretical view that was originally taught by a man named Apollinaris who claimed that the Logos took the place of the human soul in the incarnation. In essence, there was no human soul in the, in the, in the Christ. But at the heart of the charge, it seems that the word did not assume a full human nature. Again, he just assumed flesh, the material component, the physical component of man. A few possible explanations for, for this, as some have suggested, that Athanasius used the word flesh interchangeably with man or with body. Another could be that he used flesh in biblical categories where in scriptures it includes both body and soul. You could cross-reference in Galatians 5, 19 to 21 that these are the deeds of the flesh, both outward expressions of the flesh and yet inside, like envy and jealousy. But as Barnes pointed out, Athanasius emphasized the word's deity because of the priorities of the debates of his time. Even Anatolius noted that Athanasius was not focused on the internal makeup of the person of Christ, rather Christ's activity of uniting God and the world. Again, Athanasius' paradigm is in the context of redemption. But let's actually hear from Athanasius himself. This is his letter to Epictetus. Quote, the Savior having in very truth become man, the salvation of the whole man was brought about. The whole man, body and soul alike, has truly obtained salvation in the word himself. Another resources, if you really want to get to know Athanasius, is um, have a look at Peter Barnes' book named Athanasius of Alexandria, His Life and Impact. This is part of an early church father series edited by Michael Haken with Sean Willihite and Peter Lightheart's book, aptly named Athanasius. So two Peters and two books on Athanasius. The second section of 
um, for, for, our, for our talk today is Athanasius' contribution in terms of apologetics. Athen another contributor of Athanasius to the church is the, his defense of the Christian faith. So the first aspect that will be explored is his actual methodology, his apologetic methodology, and the second is his defense of the homoousion in the Nicene Creed. Again, homoousion is a Greek word meaning of the same essence or being. Here, Peter Lightheart comments on Athanasius' uh, methodology. Though he was able to use the philosophy he knew in anti-pagan apologetics and anti-Aryan polemics, Athanasius remained throughout his life mainly a Bible teacher. His most basic convictions, passions, instincts, beliefs, and views shaped not by Plotinus or Stoicism, but by Scripture. Athanasius believed that the sacred and inspired scriptures are sufficient to declare the truth. And his approach is not merely just to li list proof text, but his approach is to demonstrate the meaning, the coherence of the whole scripture by proper interpretation. In a portion of his work on the incarnation, Athanasius would interweave scriptural texts and give brief exposition why the word must become incarnate. Athanasius' methodology was, was described by Thomas Wynandy, another um, scholar who wrote on Athanasius, as an evangel evangelistic apologetic, meaning he affirmed the truth of the Christian faith so that the believer can properly defend and articulate the gospel. So his apologetic methodology of upholding to the sufficiency of scriptures and properly interpreting the text benefited the church in refuting false teachings and preserving sound faith. So as Christians, we could benefit from Athanasius' example, even by emulating his pattern of apologetics. One key tenet to the Christian faith that Athanasius defend is the equality and relationship of the Son to the Father, particularly seen in his defense of the homoousion in the Nicene Creed. Michael Reeves wrote in his book, Theologians You Should Know, that Athanasius would devote his life in defending the affirmation that the Son was begotten, not made, of the same being of the Father, homoousion to patri. This line in the Creed is an example of a cataphatic and apophatic statement. You may remember a few weeks ago in Pastor Clint's sermon, where he mentioned these terms as a way to describe God, or in this case, the Son. A cataphatic statement is a positive affirmation. The Son was begotten of the Father, while an apophatic statement is a negative description. The Son was not made. This is a way to, to sharpen, to define what you mean, even to understand who God is. One of the causes for his defense of homoousion was a charge that the word was not biblical. It was not found in the scriptures. Athanasius responded to those who made this charge that they also were using unscriptural phrases. Both sides were using script words outside of the scriptures. Listen to what Athanasius wrote in a letter entitled Defense of the Nicene Definition. Quote, this is a, this is a bit of a long one. Speaking of Eusebius and his fellows, Eusebius is another man who, who, who upheld similar views to Arius. But since the present party, in the fresh arrogance of irreligion 
and in dizziness about the truth are full set upon accusing the council, let them tell us what are the sort of scriptures from which they have learned, or who is the saint by whom they have been taught, that they have heaped together the phrases out of nothing, and he was not before his generation, and once he was not, and alterable, and preexistence, and at the will, which are the fables and mockery of the Lord. You see, Athanasius defended the council's proper use of extra-biblical words because they contained the sense of the scriptures. Though the bishops would have preferred to stick with the words of the scriptures, but they anticipated the tactics of the opposition. So they were forced to express more distinctly the sense of the words. So after going through what the scriptures is saying, they're trying to distill it in words so that it is clear this is what the scripture is saying. Athanasius then explained the council's use of the phrase from the essence, when in essence. The son's essence is from the father immutably and indivisibly for quote, the son was from the father and not merely like, but the same in likeness, inseparable from the essence of the father and he and the father are one as he has said himself and the word is ever in the father and the father in the word. The phrase also guards against the error of perceiving the word, the logos, as created. Because if his essence is of the Father, the word, the word is therefore unlike created things. He cannot be created. He cannot be, be made up of created things. And lastly, Athanasius stated that homoousion must be understood in a non-physical sense. We must we remember again that creator-creature distinction. God is different from us. We, we cannot put back our human understanding onto who God is. So he says here, when we hear the phrase, one in essence, let us not fall upon human sense and imagine partitions and divisions of the Godhead, but as having our thoughts directed to things immaterial, let us preserve undivided the oneness of nature. So because of Athanasius' meticulous effort to preserve the proper interpretation of the Nicene Creed, he was able to articulate faithfully and accurately what the Christian mystery of God as the Father and the Son is. He maintained the orthodox way of understanding, interpreting, and expressing the nature and relationship of the Father and the Son as the Father's at Nicaea solidified. And last, Athanasius' contribution in terms of his personal character and witness to the world. Athanasius was not only known for his doctrine and his apologetics, he was known for his life, his character, his witness, and his service to the body of Christ. Athanasius was a wor world-class theologian, and yet his life was not detached from the church. Athanasius is generally known with the phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. A fitting description for a man who was exiled not only once, not only twice, but exiled five times in his life for defending the deity of Christ against Arianism. Because of his tenacity to guard the Christian faith, he gained loyalty and support, and while at the same time, he attracted many oppositions, many enemies. Wynandy, uh, Thomas Wynandy reasoned why he both had friends and enemies is because he would not compromise the truth 
of the gospel. But listen to some, some commendations from a few people regarding Athanasius' witness. Emperor Jovian praised Athanasius in a letter to him. It says here, Admiring exceedingly the achievements of your most honorable life and of your likeness to the God of all and of your affection toward our Savior Jesus Christ, we accept you, most honored bishop. Gregory of Nazianzen wrote, In praising Athanasius, I shall be praising virtue. To speak of him and to praise virtue are identical because he had, or to speak more truly, has embraced virtue in its entirety. When, when Athanasius was restored from being exiled, he did not respond with vengeance, but he treated so mildly and gently those who had injured him that even they themselves did not find his restoration distasteful. Even more so, Athanasius actually made efforts to reconcile those who were in conflict with one another and with him. So all throughout the years, Athanasius had a good reputation for his character and his witness. But not until in the 20th century when critiques of Athanasius' character began cropping up. In Peter Barnes' book, he lists a survey of critiques from contemporary scholars. And this is just a survey, and just have a listen to what they say regarding Athanasius. One scholar said, he was one who is like an employer of thugs hired to intimidate his enemies. Though an unscrupulous politician, he was also a genuine theologian. Another one, he was vehement to the point of violence and his charity was the face of an astute politician out to achieve his own ends. Another, there is something un-Greek about his nature which is harsh and rigid without a touch of intellect, grace, or charm. And last, there is something in him of the temper of the modern dogmatic revolutionary. Nothing stopped him. So man just critiques on, the, on Athanasius. No doubt, because of Athanasius' position of authority and leadership as Bishop of Alexandria, his influence was, was extensive and significant. He was polemical against false teachings. He was dogmatic when it comes to upholding the truth, especially concerning the things of God. However, to view Athanasius in this light, one would need to consider carefully how this negative assessment would affect his witness as a believer, as a theologian, and a bishop. See for yourself, I commend you, read his works, read the On, on the Incarnation, read his Easter letters, his more pastoral letters, so that you'll be able to understand who actually Athanasius is. But Athanasius confessed that he was a lover of Christ. He understood that the connection between doctrine and life was important. He recognized that in order to attain to right knowledge of the scriptures, an honorable life is needed and a pure soul and that virtue which is according to Christ. Athanasius sought to protect the church from compromising the truth. Athanasius, by his words and deeds, demonstrated that he was indeed a servant of Christ and his church. He focuses energies to preserve and uphold the person and work of Jesus Christ within the context of creation and redemption. He contended for the divinity of the Lord Jesus by demonstrating that he is the word, the Logos. 
through whom God created everything, Athanasius affirmed that the same word who became truly man and remained truly God is the only sufficient one to restore creation, the only sufficient one to renew the image of God in man. His high view of the scriptures and his grasp of its inherent consistencies enabled him to refute erroneous interpretations and to present a more accurate meaning. His defense of the Nicene Creed not only maintained an orthodox understanding of the triune God, but it also provided the church a way to articulate properly the equality and relationship of the Son to the Father. Because Athanasius was determined and unswerving to stand for the truth, he garnered many opponents. But for Athanasius, his focus was to protect the faith that was received from the Lord and through his apostles. Yet despite his sufferings and persecution he lived through, he pressed on because he was persuaded that they who endure shall receive a reward from our Savior. So that's just a brief overview of the life of Athanasius and even his contributions to the church. Uh, I, I, and by way of um, applications even for our life as Christian believers. Just, just three things for us, even in learning from who Athanasius is and what his contributions are to the church. Number one, you have to be clear on your Christology. And that is both for the believer and the unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever here, you need to know Christ because to know Christ is to know the gospel. And that is how your soul would be saved. But for the believer, for us, even now that we're studying in John, we just recently took a look at John 1, 1 to 18. In the, word was the begin, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Very clear that we need to understand who the Logos is, who the Son is, who the Christ is. Because he is our savior. He is our Lord. Second, the defense of the faith, apologetics, is not for your sake only. We'd like like one up one another and say, I got the best defense. I got the best apologetics. I nailed it. I got the zinger. But apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, is not for your sake only so that you know what you believe, but for the sake of the church for the sake of the church, for the sake of the one sitting beside you in the pew, for the sake of your brothers and sisters, for the sake even for the invisible church throughout the whole world. And last question for you and for me, are you known as a lover of Christ? Are you known as a lover of Christ? For Athanasius, though he was dogmatic in preserving the faith, he wanted to show that he wanted to honor Jesus Christ. Let me just read this text from 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says here, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So for us, for those who believe in Christ, are you known as a lover of Christ? That is, that is, that is really one of our testimony, our witness. And that when, when you are known as a lover of Christ, people would ask, 
Why do you love this Christ? Then then you could show them who this Christ is whom you love and show them this Christ who loved you first. So thank you for listening. And um, we could try to field in some questions, but I heard I got some options to, uh, to deflect to the more <laughs> able people who could answer more tougher questions. <laughs> Alan. I think for that one, uh, let me just see here. I think the sense for his apologetics, just particularly in, in, in what I described for Athanasius, is that when, when, when Athanasius was, was using the Bible, especially against those who held um, Arius' view, against that teaching, is that they go through the scriptures, understanding the sense of the scriptures, that they would use actually words outside of scriptures to make, to, to, to rather explain it. Because sometimes, uh, just an example I was reading yesterday, that, um, that, that the, Ari- the Ari- Arians would agree with of God, that the son was of God, but they would start saying, oh yeah, I, I, I agree with that, but then they would start twisting the way they would understand it. So that, they, so that um, even Athanasius would, uh, Athanasius, excuse me, the fathers at Nancy would clarify that, even specify further of the essence of God so that there's no way that these, these um, opponents would, would skew or would distort what the sense of Scripture is trying to say. Yes, that's right, yeah. That's right, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I want to I want to say what I what I think, but uh, um, I think um, I have to be careful here because uh, I'm just still learning what what begotten is. But I think for this one again, we have to keep in mind when Athanasius was saying begotten and not made, we cannot think of the way as a father, a human father, would beget a human son. That 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 human style of begetting cannot be applied to who that. Um, it cannot be applied to the relationship of the father to the son. So in, in, in a sense, the father eternally generated, eternally begotten the son, not in the same sense that a father would beget the son. Therefore, when, when, when that is being said, the father and the son is of the same essence. It's like the essence of the father is not cut in half, and now the half of that father is now bled into the son. That's, that's something I don't know if Pastor Josh or Pastor Rob would say anything about that, but there it is. <laughs>
start to see here that the, the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, were assumed to be God's word within Christendom all the way up until, I mean, you, you could say probably German spiritual scholarship in the 18th century, when, when German spiritual scholars started attacking um, the inspiration, inerrancy, um, and sufficiency of scripture and so on. So what that means then is a, a apologetic debate, theological debate throughout church history, um, the, your adversaries were always using scripture. So, so in other words, um, th there wasn't sort of the, you could say, post-enlightenment rationalism that has stepped away from the scriptures and try, trying to make arguments against the truthfulness of scripture outside of scripture, if that makes sense. Um, you know, even, you know, Reformation era, um, the Roman Catholics were using uh, scripture largely to make their argument, obviously tradition as well, but tradition based upon their understanding of scripture, right? So uh, all that to say, the, the idea of apologetic, um, the notion of, of what, what you're bringing up, Alan, I think it's, it's more of a modern Go ahead, Aiden. Can, can you say that the last part again? Mm. So at least Christology for me is that it goes beyond the pages of the scriptures. It actually points to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded even of the sermon of Pastor Clint, of even how I was brought out of my darkness into Christ, is that I actually remembered even, just even probably just in my mind or in my vision, that the Christ is risen. He actually was raised from the dead and very important to realize that his resurrection is bodily. You, you'll see here, even as, as the church history goes through, that they would charge that Christ just seemed to be apparent, seemed to appear, but not really truly in human form. But then you go on to the other side, emphasizing, oh, he was really truly human, just like us, just having fallen human nature like us, but not truly God. So for Christ, for me, he is both God and man that's who that's who christ is and that and even with that though it is not an abstract god or man theology abstract god or man doctrine it is a personal one for for myself and even for you and that's that's how it, at least uh, just a way of encouragement of who christ is
So with that, may just close us in prayer and we'll have a time of fellowship afterwards. Let me pray. Eternal and unchanging God, our Father in heaven who is gracious and merciful, showing such undeserved favor towards us. Lord, we thank you even for today to be able to gather in the Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, to be reminded, Lord, that Jesus Christ has rose from the dead bodily, Lord, and will come back to bring his people with him. So help us even to have this outlook today as we are eager to expect to to commune with you, to receive your word together with the saints. And that, Lord, help us that we would focus our eyes, focus our heart, even our attention to you. Be with us even today in Jesus' name. Amen.